So let's start with the rapid fire, the first one. Describe what your organization does in one sentence. The premier civil rights organization for the world. How long does it take you to get ready in the mornings? Under a half hour. Most valuable skill you've learned in life? Smile. City in which the best kiss of your life happened? Wherever I am with my wife. Okay. <laughs> uh, in one sentence, describe one problem that your organization is facing. Uh, bias in the workforce. How many speakers can you name at this conference? Myself. How do you relax? I don't. A habit of yours that you hate. These are good questions. <laughs> you can pass. Pass. <laughs> work from home or work from office? Office, not even close. Most embarrassing moment of your life? Pass. <laughs> How many hours of sleep can you survive on? Six to seven. Your favorite app? Instagram. <laughs> Biggest mistake of your career? Okay. Pass. The first movie that comes to your mind when I say the word technology. Um, Wally. How many cups of coffee do you drink in a day? Should be illegal. Too many. <laughs> your favorite Netflix show? Uh, I don't really watch a lot of TV. Mm -hmm. Okay. My wife does. All right. So we're going to the long form questions. Yeah. Do you agree with this statement? Countries must routinely collect and exchange data on the success or failure of various technological policy measures across jurisdictions to bring regulations and ethics up to date. Yes and no. I, I do think that, you know, the collection of data uh, can be important and can be useful for civil law enforcement agencies like mine in the United States, in my case, to root out discrimination, specifically with uh, pay discrimination, which my agency is responsible for enforcing. So having some level of transparency to be able to see um, what the issues are does take their collection of data. At the same time, I do understand that a lot of this data that tech companies or businesses has is proprietary is their secret sauce or also has information that the employees or the users don't want government seeing. So I do think there has to be a balance of that, but it can be obviously very helpful when people don't know their own rights to be able to use data to find that later on. So how do you think different countries are approaching this? If you could give an example of this. Well, in the United States, my agency um, for the first time in 2016 asked private employers for their information related to um, pay data. Um, and it was very controversial. A lot of uh, employers did not want to give that information. They were very fearful that the government couldn't handle the privacy of that data collection or the utility of just giving the government um, broad categories of pay data. And uh, there was, of course, in the United States, there was litigation and ultimately uh, my agency was re required to collect that data. Um, but I do think that 
you know, when governments do collect data, there should be pilot programs first. The public should be involved in the amount of data that should be collected because collecting data or having access to data is one thing, but actually having a utility of that data to be able to make an impactful change. Like again, my example to root out pay discrimination in the workplace between uh, men and women is important, but we can't just have you know unlimited amounts of data without it being very specified and i think we do need to work with the private sector to be able to um, properly do that and does the future look like that there's going to be more data collection of this kind absolutely i think from both in the united states and here in europe uh you know whether it's with uh, gdpr or some of the efforts in the united states i do think that more data as private companies get them governments are going to want to have them too but um, i think it's important that we remember the, the sensitivity of that data and the potential information about people's health, their finances that really need to be protected. So uh, it's a very complicated topic um, that we all need to work together to get to do right. So to what extent are private companies leading the game of data more than government organizations? Well, I think private companies are obviously have a lot of data on their not only their workforce, uh, but their customers as well. And a lot of them are now using artificial intelligence to cull and correlate that data to make meaningful impacts. Uh, and I think that's a very good use of data collection for private individuals if you're going to do something with it. Now, are you going to just use it for a commercial purpose, which is okay for a lot of you know companies in that industry, but how are you going to use it to benefit your workforce? How are you going to use it to benefit your public? And that's the question, especially in my space, which deals with the workforce, especially dealing with diversity and inclusion in the workplace. How are you going to use that data you collect in a meaningful way? Because you own the data, you have access to the data, whether or not the government will ever see that, but you can use that largely through technology to actually improve the conditions of your workers, whether it's through the finding them the right jobs, finding what their skills are, or paying them properly. A lot of that can be done without government intervention. What do you think about trying to maintain democracy in the digital age while balancing censorship and passivity? Well, I think this is a, a very uh, a key topic that has really been discussed a lot at this um, conference. But, you know, there has to be um, you know, a, a balance here of ensuring that there is a regulatory framework when it comes to technology, but it doesn't stifle innovation. And that's what I'm trying hard to do when it comes to artificial intelligence in the workplace, to really make sure that the um, tech vendors who are creating this technology and businesses using this technology know that there are existing laws out there and there is this existing legal framework regarding the use of data and decisions made through technology. And I think a lot of that has been lost as new technology comes on the market so quickly, as artificial intelligence is being so developed so rapidly, that there's no framework and that we need new laws and we need new regulations. And I've been trying to slow everyone down. For instance, the laws I enforce in my agency are from the 1960s, but they apply to equal weight to decisions employers are making with technology as they do to decisions people are making with a pen and paper. And that is really getting lost in the regulation of technology perspective because it's getting into a lot of the tech censorship or the black box of algorithms and the decisions they made. But I believe that it's important for regulators like myself in the United States and here in Europe or the UK, wherever you are, to help tech companies understand the long-standing existing frameworks and distill it into a language that they understand. And that they're not regulators, tech companies, they're computer engineers, they're software engineers, they're very smart. So we need to make sure that they understand the regulations so they can build it into their technology. That's what I'm trying to do. And I think that needs to happen globally because if it does, the products can then be developed with 
the re existing regulatory framework in mind, and we don't need to rush to put a new framework that may hamper innovation. But to what extent is technology evolving at such a fast pace that every three years there's kind of a paradigm shift? And do you think at some point governments will have to bring in AI to kind of like, you know, keep pace with like making regulations for this? I do think that the technology, there's new technology coming in the market every single day. And whether or not there's existing laws that can, um, within those frameworks is a question to be asked. But you raise a, a great point in how do we, how does the government keep up with rapid developing technology? And we're not going to be able to because we have to deal with issues that don't relate to technology. Um, you know, we're across the board. This is just one industry that we have to regulate. So I think it is really important here and something that I'm trying to drive home to tech companies and users of the technology is self-governance, is making sure you're the ones who are developing these products so rapidly that the government and other people are not going to be able to keep up with. So it's on you to make sure that you're de developing and deploying products that comply with the law and then that are used ethically, because ultimately, at the end of the day, that's where the liability is going to be. And that's where the future regulations, which a lot of companies don't you know, want because it can harm their development. We can avoid all of that if these products are self-regulated and the users of them are building teams around them to make sure that they're used properly. To what extent then will tech companies get very intertwined with the world of politics? You're already seeing a lot of waves by tech giants like Elon Musk interfering with uh, like, you know, usually it used to be two separate spheres, but now we see political and tech, even at this conference, combining. And what's, where is this leading to? Well, I'm a government official. I'm here at this conference. So I think it's really important. And I think from, you know, from my seat in Washington, D.C., the tech industry is just one of thousands of industries that we regulate. And having that relationship with industries, whether, it, whether it's technology, whether it's manufacturing, whether it's retail, whether it's travel and leisure, you name it. There's laws that apply to all of them. So having that relationship with the key stakeholders from these different areas is how these governments have worked. Washington, D.C. has worked for a long time. But tech does need to be at the table, just like all industries, because we need to hear from them about what they want to do and how they can do it the right way and how they can work with us, to whether it's passing reasonable regulations that protect consumers, but also allow tech to flourish. Um, and that's the way other industries have done it. Um, for years and years and years, and it's no different than the tech industry. So I welcome that interaction and becoming part of this community because that's how things can happen that everyone is happy with and we can move forward opposed to governments, whether it's in D.C., London, or Brussels, are just making the rules without talking to the industries they're regulating. And that's where the first thing comes from. That's the problem. So I welcome this conversation. Would you say that it is possible to envisage a future in which AI can help enable privacy. Absolutely. I think that artificial intelligence, when designed properly and, and also implemented carefully, can actually help a lot of the problems we're dealing with, with whether it's in MySpace, which is eliminating bias in the workforce by you know trying to use artificial intelligence on neutral data characteristics and skills opposed to bias that has been built into a lot of decision making process or in other areas you know the benefit of ai is that it has it has no mind of its own it can really make decisions based upon neutral characteristics but then of course you know the data has to be built on quality data and people can't interfere with the algorithm so it's it's a it, it is a 
an area that can really, across the board, artificial intelligence can really help prevent a lot of our problems that have been occurring and that may occur in the future. But at the same time, if it's not properly de uh, designed, it could scale the issues far larger than we've ever seen because it can make decisions faster than any human. So that's the balance that I'm trying to um, talk about now. And to what extent does AI destabilize equal employments, you know, a theory of equal employment? Sure. So if it's improperly designed or carelessly implemented, AI can discriminate on a scale far greater than any human being. Because, you know, AI is just going to look at the data that it's correlating. So if you want to diversify your workforce and you're using artificial intelligence um, to do that, um, and a lot of these AI HR programs are built and sold to advance diversity, equity, inclusion. But if you're telling AI that these are my best employees, go find me them. And if those employees are made up of one race, gender, national origin, religion, the computer is just going to look at those characteristics and replicate that existing bias that you're trying to eliminate. So a lot of it is how it is, you know, the data it's being used, whether it's being audited properly before it's ever used to make a decision on someone's livelihood. Because AI in HR is different than AI in business. Because when you're using AI in HR, you're making a decision on someone's livelihood, their ability to enter in the workforce and thrive in the workforce. And that's a much different equation than using it to make deliveries faster or to build products faster. So it takes that uh, very careful um, requirement to make sure that your data set is not going to be biased because you only have the same people in the data or the algorithm doesn't let you screen out older workers, doesn't let you screen out pregnant females. So a lot of it is not just on the data set, it's also on the design as well. So it can really potentially cause discrimination if it's not properly used. Do you already know of some applications of AI in HR that are common? Are there any startups around? Are there some things you all are looking to regulate already? Well, we are talking, you know, it's, it's very common. A lot of large companies are using AI to recruit employees, to screen applicants, or to conduct job interviews. So it's not uncommon for a large company. If you go to apply for the job, your first interview is with a chatbot on an app on your phone. You know, and that can be really beneficial because the interviewer can't see you. The interviewer doesn't see your the color of your skin, your gender, or if you ha or you're disabled. When somebody else before would see that and then could potentially make an unlawful decision on that. So you know, using AI to eliminate an example I like to talk about is somebody's name. What does somebody's name tell you about the ability to perform their job? Nothing. It tells you about their sex, their potential national origin, their race or their religion, all things which once you know, you can't unsee, right? So, you know, being able to remove some of those indicators of being associated with um, who you are and actually get to your skills on your resume is a really solid use of AI and HR that a lot of companies are taking that skills based approach. Do you think that social media as a whole is doing more harm than good? Do you think the problems far outweigh the rewards? I mean, it's sort of out of my wheel. So I can't really, I can't really comment on that. Okay. I just, I don't have any regulatory authority over it. Fair. And my personal opinion doesn't matter as much as my professional opinion. What do you have to say about the upcoming recession and predicted job losses, if any? So in, um, after the recession in 2008, when the housing and job market collapsed, we saw an increase of claims of discrimination. So uh, for instance, last year at the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission nationwide, we received around 62,000 charges of discrimination. 
Now in the United States, you can't sue your employer without coming to the EEOC first. So we really see all the trends. To compare that relatively no low number of 62,000, after the recession in around 2010 through 2012, that number was around 100,000 cases of discrimination every year. So we're almost at a 40% decrease from the last recession. And why is that? Because maybe if you were discriminated against with a job market so well, you could just go get another job, often remote, paying more at this point the way the job market was because those opportunities are available. So instead of now bringing a case against your former employer, if you feel like you were fired because of you're disabled or fired because you're a woman, you can just go find another job and move on with your life. But when there's a recession and those other jobs aren't available and you were just terminated because of an unlawful reason, because of your race, religion, national origin, et cetera, then you may have nowhere else to go. So I do expect if there is a recession and the job market shrinks, that we will start seeing more claims of discrimination and whether or not those people were actually laid off because of a true reduction in workforce or they were laid off for an illegal reason because they were older, you know, we have to sift through that in our cases. But typically following the trends, we'll see a large spike of discrimination with a recession. Okay. So the next question is one sentence on Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter. No comment. <laughs> okay. So the last question for you is what would you be doing in your life if not this? I think I would uh, enjoy being a morning TV anchor, like somebody who does the 4 a.m. or 5 a.m. shift to be real peppy early in the morning when people are sleeping or groggy waking up and just be a smiling face on TV, welcoming everyone to the new day when they're half asleep. So that's probably what I would enjoy doing. Talk about, you know, the opposite end of the spectrum. You know, now I'm a government regulator labor, uh, in labor and employment. Uh, but in college, I did uh, major in broadcast journalism. So I think I would go back to that. That was amazing. It was great listening to you. 